0: Greetings, in Jesus' name, Um, thank you for your visitors, welcome you for coming and joining us today. I uh, think of that song that we just sang, just have sung, Lord, grant us wisdom and grant us courage. There'd be a lot. There'd be a message in those words. There. Of course, we need grace, and we need love, and we need many, many other Christian character qualities. But for wisdom and for courage, then, because sometimes when we actually, let's just say, when we actually, uh, this is this is a little strange to say something when you actually get wisdom. How do you know you have wisdom, you know? (laughs) But when you actually are understanding what the issues are and what needs to be done, sometimes you need courage. (laughs) So we need wisdom. But then we need courage to move forward. So thank you, Joshua, for that song. And I did enjoy the opening very much, uh, very, you could easily have a message, a number of uh, thoughts on those. For this morning, I would like to continue on the third exposition of Peter's second letter, Peter chapter 2, that letter of exhortation that Peter gave just before he was martyred by Nero. Well, that's at least church tradition that he was martyred by Nero. Thirty-eight years after Jesus' resurrection, here was Peter, an older man, with a burden. You think of, just thinking of Peter's life, there was that resurrection of Jesus and then there was the, the awareness and uh, all of a sudden it came and dawned on the disciples what was going on and then the Spirit of God came after, after Jesus ascended and the Spirit of God came and the church began and you have Peter, the day of Pentecost, preaching that message. It is seven, thirty eight years later where he wrote this letter, just to give context. He's writing this letter. It's a generation later. A lot of things have happened since that time, since that birth of that church. Jesus had started his kingdom on earth while he was physically not present. He's in heaven, but he is reigning over his people on earth. It's a kingdom now, and yet it's still a coming kingdom. It's a kingdom now is that those who listen to him actually come into his kingdom and live according to his laws and rules and and ideals and values. That's what the heaven dwellers do. And uh, many times, those that operate by that kingdom are not understood by those who do not operate by that kingdom. That's why there's persecution. That's why there is um, opposition and so on. But that's the kingdom that Jesus established and that Peter is promoting here. Well, like usual, we are going to read... 1st Peter and no, 2nd Peter and no, the 1st 11 verses Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have attained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our savior Jesus Christ But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fail. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ." The first four verses is the provisions that have been given to all Christians. You have that precious faith, grace and peace being multiplied, divine power. We have everything given that pertaining to life and godliness. And on top of that, we have great and precious promises both now and for the future. You know, it's like. The parable that Jesus gave that we read recently at home for family devotions in Mark chapter 12 where this man, it says a man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it. He dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and he built a lookout tower and then he leased it to some individuals. Who got everything equipped to operate that farm? It says a man did. That, of course, represents God, is what this man represents. That's how God is. How much help does he need to create the world? Doesn't need our help. He made everything in five and a half days. No, not every Yeah, He made the whole world in five and a half days, and then everything was ready. Then he made man. Six days then, right? Okay. <laughs> Approximately. Now man has a responsibility, but he was given a well equipped creation. Were you ever responsible for something without the resources available to accomplish what you needed to do? Did that ever happen to you? This was your responsibility. You needed to do it, but you weren't given the tools or the resources that was needed to do it. I, I, you may have or may not have been in such a situation. I'm thinking of right now the best situation I could think of was a hospital situation where in a war, war zone where injured people are coming in, but the hospital lacks the basic supplies. There's no bandages, there's no meds, there's no IV, there's no blood. Sometimes it doesn't even have electricity. And there are patients coming in that are injured and you need to take care of them. But you don't have the resources. God is not like that. When he gives us a responsibility... He gives us abundant provisions, and that's what the first four chapters of Second Peter are about, the abundant provisions. The Lord is my shepherd. What comes next? I shall not want. I shall not be in want because He will provide what I need. After that overwhelming abundance, the Lord does ask us to add. And that's the second message that we heard, had, and that's verse 5. Verse 5 in Second Peter is a shift from verse, the first four verses. And I'm going to read it now again. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. We have been given a fully equipped vineyard. But that vineyard will not produce fruit on its own. You can have that vine there, but you will not have a bottle of grape juice without some input. That's a given. And so, he says, give, giving all diligence. That word diligence, that's a word that smells sweaty. It actually feels like sore muscles. It actually, well, that word will give you calluses on your hands. That word will develop biceps on your arms. Giving all diligence is a strong word. It actually hurts like blisters, that word does. But biceps aren't the goal, is it? No, that's the result or a byproduct of giving yourself to a job, a work that you're called to do. And what is that job? Well, the first job that we had after giving all diligence is to add virtue. Virtue, the last time we said, is something that is virtuous or excellent. It's only virtuous or excellent if it actually does what it was designed to do. And I used the illustration of a pocket knife that I got as a boy. A pocket knife is a big thing for a little boy to get. I thought I was a big boy. But I discovered that all those knives, I got several of them, they were all dull when I got them. Because the purpose of that knife was not actually to cut. It was probably actually to keep little boys from cutting their fingers off. So depending how you look at it, it, if you want a knife that is designed to cut, it's not an excellent knife unless it is very sharp. And that's how it is for you or I. For us to add excellence to our faith... We need to know what our purpose in God is. What are we here for? How do I know if I'm excellent, if I'm fulfilling that purpose, if I don't know what it is? And what we had looked at the last time is, there will be no significant maturing in our faith until we come to the realization that we belong entirely to God. We have been bought with a price Therefore, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. You don't have the right to your own life. We were purchased from a former taskmaster, which is Satan, and we've been bought. And now the Lord Jesus bought us with that precious blood. We love him because he first loved us. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice because of the mercies of God. And it is our privilege and our responsibility to represent him on earth. Now, I found it interesting. I, I read the United States Oath of Allegiance. How many of you know what the United, United States Oath of Allegiance says? Okay, well, it's relevant if you think of it in spiritual terms instead of national terms. I'm going to read it and think of it in spiritual terms rather than national, that flag over there. Think of it as doing an oath to the kingdom of God. No, don't do an oath. (laughs) You understand what I mean? It says, I, and then you put your name in, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have hitherto for been a subject or a citizen. That I will support and defend the constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on the behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform noncombatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law. That I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. And that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me, God. If you would want to become a United States citizen, you would need to give this allegiance, to become a citizen. And the wording is strong, but if you put it into the spiritual dimension, it is no less as strong for the Christian to make that unreserved and complete full allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and whatever that kingdom is. That is how we add Virtue to our faith. That is the first and primary addition. And last time I had explained how an, an embryo develops, uh, it develops both simultaneously and it also develops sequentially. There are certain parts that develop first even while the other parts are being developed. But there are certain parts that are most important that get developed first. And this is one of those most important ones. The first one is a complete allegiance to the kingdom of God. If that is missing in your life, then the rest of the list will not, it'll be out of kelter. It will not, it'll It'll not prop on. It won't have a foundation. Then I thought I would also uh, give a more of an illustration of the, uh, of those seven virtues that are, that are listed here, I'll take a little bit of time here, and I'm not an artist, but I will try to draw some kind of a pillar here. And that's supposed to be something pretty there, okay? That's what a decoration there. And here we have simultaneously and sequentially. So the first one that we have on the list there is virtue. And what we have this morning then is knowledge. Knowledge is built on top of virtue. And uh, virtue, of course, is excellence. We won't write all that down. Then we have what we are going to call that is the the base or the foundation of the column. This is the wholeheartedness of Christianity. Then we have temperance, which is basically self-control. And we have patience. And I'm not a good speller. If it's spelled wrong, uh, tell me later. Uh, That basically means endurance, and then we have godliness. This is the center support. It's the backbone or the the brave-heartedness of the Christian's life. Are you Brave enough to deal with the temperance or the self or the um, what had I said the um, self control? Not that's what I, What word am I thinking of? I can't think of temperance anyhow. And patience is endurance. Are you able to deal with those things in your life? They are. That takes a brave heart to deal with those things in your life. And then we come to the to the top, which is. Brotherly kindness, Uh, temperance is self-control, and um, charity. This is the attractiveness or the beauty of Christianity. It is the tender hearted, tender hearted part of a Christian. And they're all to be developed simultaneously in our lives, but they actually get developed from the foundation on up and you arrive in fullness there when these things are in place. So that gives you a little bit of an idea where we're going and also a perspective. So where are we building at the pillar this morning? We are still on the bottom part, which is the commitment part. Add to your virtue knowledge. Grow in knowledge. Someone has described it, and I don't have to quote here, but growing in virtue has to do with capturing the heart for Jesus. That's what growing in virtue is. Growing in knowledge has to do with informing the heart about Jesus. Capturing the heart for Jesus, and then informing the heart about Jesus. The... Jameson Fawcett Brown Commentary said, And in the exercise of your virtue, add knowledge, namely practical discrimination of good and evil, intelligent appreciation of what the will of God is in each detail of practice. Become informed as to what Jesus taught and what his will is. That's what knowledge is. The second part, you know, the first part of Romans 12, uh, we beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's virtue. But the second verse is the knowledge part. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or discern what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there in Romans chapter one and, uh, chapter 12, verses one and two, you have virtue and knowledge in that same sequence. You have faith. You are saved by grace through faith. You have added virtue when you signed that contract and said, "Lord Jesus, I unreservedly give my life to you. Now it is time to be informed what God's will is. Knowledge means to come to perceive or understand. You know, you heard like someone do the forehead bump. Oh, why didn't I think of that before? It finally dawned on me that that's what I was supposed to know. It, you, you perceive something. That's what, what knowledge is. Getting Gaining knowledge, you mean you perceive something. <clears throat> it's actually a neutral word. It can be good knowledge or it can be bad knowledge, or it can be good knowledge with a bad effect. One illustration of that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where they're talking about meat offered to idols, and Paul told them, you know, we all have knowledge. It's the same word. We all have knowledge. But knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. So, if knowledge puffs up, we should avoid it, right? <laughs> well, the reason it puffs up is because it, uh, it wasn't acclimated with other virtues. Knowledge by itself is not a good thing, but knowledge with other things is. There's another place where the word is used negatively, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoiding profane and vain babblings and opposition of science, there's our word, opposition of knowledge, falsely so called, which some have swerved from the faith. So knowledge can make you wrong, uh, make you proud, and wrong knowledge can shipwreck your faith. But Peter insists that knowledge is absolutely essential for a Christian's growth. It's near the beginning of the development of a Christian, and is considered a foundational part. The next three are what we would call the guts of Christianity. It's the real. It's where it's where it really affects your life, but it needs to be built on this. It needs to have a good foundation. The end of Paul's letter, which is the second to last verse, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in knowledge. Add to your faith knowledge. Grow in your knowledge about Christ and his way. Grow in your experience with Christ and his relationship with him. Now, someone might say, well, that's a given. When you become a Christian, you will grow in your knowledge of Christ. As you walk with Christ, as you experience him, you will grow. That's a given. And in a perfect world, that's true. How many of you have been in a perfect world recently? <laughs> in a perfect world. I thought I'd like to explain it. Let's look at, I'll just read it. Another verse that has the same word knowledge in it, and we'll use it as an illustration why that's not a given. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, Ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. There is our word, knowledge, same word. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now, when a man marries a woman, it is a given, is it not, that he will continually get to know her better? He will discover what she likes and what she doesn't like, and as he experiences life with her, he will become more and more intimately connected with her. That's a given, is it not? Well, if that's a given, why would Paul, uh, you know, Peter have to say that husbands and give them, this, like, dwell with them according to knowledge, get to know them, dwell with them according to understanding. So it's not a given. How many couples are there that actually do not experience this growing in knowledge? Talk about the husband. Since Peter talks about the husband, how many husbands, after years and years of marriage, still do not understand what is so frustrating about their wife and their relationship? Uh, What is so frustrating to their wife about their relationship? So I'm going to use some examples to illustrate what I mean by that, a wife prepares a meal for the family, but her husband is regularly careless coming on time. He seems to not ever get it, how it frustrates her. Now, I know of personal experiences like that. Experiences, personal examples, I'm saying. Or a husband has a habit or habits that irritate or disgust his wife. But she finally needs to come to the place to just accept it, even though with only a little bit of work and understanding, he could overcome them. She so much desires to have a soulmate, someone who she can dump out her heart to, and have him do something similar to her. But he seems oblivious to this burning in her heart. And she is unfulfilled in this area of marriage. And we could go on and on and on with examples of how husbands do not grow in knowledge with their wives. And so the marriage experiences strains. It does not develop into the true oneness that is described in Ephesians chapter 5, that God has in mind, it remains shallow. And with that unsettled, unfulfilledness beneath the surface, it's beneath the surface, there's an unsettledness, there's an unfulfilledness there, there is a vulnerability in that marriage because of that. I know in our setting, we are not exposed to the same kind of vulnerability that there is in general society. And that is one of the reasons there are fewer marriage breakups in our circles. We are not exposed to that. There are checks in place that keep that vulnerability a little bit further out. So I'm glad for those checks. But are the checks the answer? No. The answer is living with our wives according to knowledge. Growing. And having that kind of understanding and fulfillment and becoming one. When you become fulfilled and are at one with your wife and an opportunity with someone else presents itself, that marriage is not nearly as vulnerable. Now, I'm going to use an old illustration that I'm going to have to explain to this generation, the next generation. This this illustration comes back to my generation. He said, here's the illustration. Why would you go for the VW when you have a Cadillac in the garage? Anybody ever heard that illustration? Only older people. (laughs) Older, relatively, Okay. You know what a VW was, young people? It was a Beetle. It had an engine in the back. It had some kind of thing you could call a heater, but it wasn't much heat in there. It could go 60 miles an hour if you waited long enough. It was a manual. It had a few good things, like uh, it was a good economy car, but it was a VW. Cadillac. That was the other end. That was the top of the line. That was the best. And the illustration is, if you have a fulfillment in your marriage, why in the world would you go with someone like that when you have something like this in your garage? And that's the vulnerability that is missing in a, in a marriage where there is growth in knowledge. So Peter is saying, get to know Jesus, get to know who he is, what he taught, more than intellectually, but experientially. There's a long relationship together with the God of heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this relationship can either grow and prosper or it can be stunted and vulnerable. <clears throat> and when it is vulnerable there will be no shortage of alternate lovers that are very very willing to step in and take its place. So Peter tells us two things if you don't get to know Jesus you will not be fruitful. And if you don't grow in your knowledge of him, the false prophets and the false teachers that we talked about later in the book are going to line up. And they will promise you fulfillment. And they will promise you fruitfulness. It's false promises, but they will do that. And when you are unfulfilled here, it will sound really good there. You know... We are also somewhat sheltered from the full, full, full brunt of the religious world that we live in. Religious, I mean, I mean the multiplicity of ideas and ideals that are, that are around. But we're not actually that far apart from that. We are vulnerable. And even if we're not pulled aside to another Jesus, we will still be barren and unfruitful. We will not be fulfilled. We will be in a marriage that is unfulfilled. And then in the last several generations, like there has been an explosion of divorce and remarriage in general society, there we are experiencing an explosion of false prophets and false teachers in our day. And I mean an explosion Harry Argo explained how the invention of the printing press revolutionized society. He said that because pamphlets and books could now be mass produced back then, he I think I heard him say he doesn't believe the revolution revolution Reformation the Reformation would not have occurred without the printing press. Because that was the catalyst to really get things. Um, mass-produced materials. It was truly a revolutionary invention that changed the course of history. And then, as media continued to develop, the telegraph, photograph, telephone, movies, radio, television, and all these media had various effects on society. But the development of the Internet and the smartphone has created a new revelation in society that pales the invention of the printing press in its speed and in its influence. What used to be out there is now right here. Right here. Everything right... I don't have my phone along. Right in my pocket. And I'm not thinking about pornography Or sex novels, although that's there too. I'm thinking about false prophets and false teachers. The dissemination of alternate ideas and belief systems that have exploded in recent years. Because of the sheer distributional ability that is available. And I am not sure if we're actually prepared to face that one. I know a brother in our congregation said we have, we have actually left an agrarian community, that means all farmland community, to where most of the fathers work away from home and has happened in one or two generations. And that's a major shift. That takes some other techniques to keep things going in a, in a, strong, in a real direction yet. Well, this is one of those things too, I feel. I'm not sure we're well prepared to face it, and I mean we, not just our youth. Shielding ourselves is part of the answer. It is. There is actually a chapter, Bible chapter and verse for that if you need one. Can anyone guess what that chapter and verse is as far as shielding yourself from that? There might be a few I have one in mind. Anyone want to guess? Okay. 1 Corinthians 15:33. Anyone to guess now? Evil be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. That's clear. Be not deceived. Exposing yourself To wrong teaching will corrupt your morals. Does anyone know what the next verse is there? This is very familiar. Verse 34, the one right after says, Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. There's our word, knowledge. Some don't have knowledge of God. They have knowledge, but not the right kind. And I speak this to your shame. You should have had it, but you don't have it. Instead, you are believing something false because you thought it was okay to intermingle with it, and the end result is you didn't have the knowledge of God. Actually, that word, knowledge, (laughs) is actually our word with an a in front of it, a negative particle in front of it, not the knowledge. You don't have knowledge. It's, actually, it's the same word with an A in front of it, ah. So, why am I so negative about this thing right now? Well, Peter is concerned that after he dies, false teachers would come in and do havoc among God's people. One of the offensive methods, one of the Offensive methods that Peter used is to prepare the Christians how to face that. Now, if that's necessary then, how much is it now? Paul says in the last days, pearliest times will come and they are here. I was reading in this past week how Eugene Peterson has tentatively accepted Gay Christians. You know who Eugene Peterson is? He is the uh, author of the Message Bible, the paraphrase Bible. And the article that I read said, We need to think realistically at present. The trend of evangelicals affirming homosexuality is not going to go away. Well that's is so far out we think we wouldn't even consider that as a possibility but don't be too sure the argumentation to justify that is pretty strong it will get some of our people christians to justify to justify homosexuality, they will say Christians, they say, used to use the Bible in the past to justify slavery. They used the Bible to forbid interracial marriage. They used the Bible to oppress women. George Whitfield, that famous revival preacher, condoned slavery in early America. And they will point out inconsistencies in God's people. And they say Christians were wrong about all that and they are wrong about it now and just be a matter of time until the full LGBT belief system will be accepted by everyone as well. And then it is affirmed the trend of evangelicals affirming homosexuality is not going to go away. Well, that we could say, we could say that it's pretty far out there. But there's more than just that issue that is at our doorstep. We have our doorstep to whole CCM phenomenon, the contemporary Christian music. There is so much wrong about the philosophy of CCM. And we could have a whole message on this. It is ecumenical to the core It is feeling oriented. It is not Bible knowledge based. It rejects the principle that music is moral. That there's good music and there's bad music. It rejects that idea. It rejects the idea that music can be worldly. It is the Christian parallel to secular pop music. And it is attractive and it feels good, it is non-judgmental, and it is inclusive. And that is not just at our doorstep. <laughs> it's among us. Then we have the emerging church, which is the post-modern culture coming into the church. This new Christian movement is swallowing up a lot of evangelical churches. They are writing books, they are holding seminars, and they are targeting our churches and especially our children. They are fluid and they're hard to define, but what is certain is this, is that sin, the concept of sin is mostly gone. And along with that, sin is gone. Is the reality of a transformed life where you can act, live in victory over sin. In its place is a focus on reforming society and improving life here. Not knowing truth for certain is considered humility. If you know something for certain, you are proud. That's a given in this Saying that you know for sure is okay if it's only for you, for yourself, but don't say it has to be for me. It's highly spontaneous, which means it rejects structure and authority. Structure and authority are bad because there you can't be authentic. You actually have someone else tell you what to do. That's not authenticism. It's also missional, which means it provides outlets for the masses to make a difference in the world. And in this way, it seems legitimate because they are concerned about the poor and the marginalized. Which Christians should be concerned about the poor and the marginalized? In fact, concern for the poor and marginalized becomes the litmus test for many of them. And who is marginalized as much as the L G (laughs) Q T community? So, it may not be so far apart after all. If we accept the philosophy of CCM, which is inclusive and ecumenical, and we get pulled into the philosophy of the emerging church, on the coattails of that comes a rationalization for the homosexual community. See, it doesn't come in the front door. It comes in the back door. And the back door has already been open in our circles. <clears throat> and only mention these three. There's many more um, as I'm thinking of the flood, the uh, flood of that's coming in because of the uh, ability for knowledge and uh, communication today. They are coming in, and the aggressiveness of these agendas has never been greater. What are the answers to these challenges? Peter has a full list of answers, but this morning we have that one word, knowledge. Add knowledge. Do you know what God's will is? Are you studying the Bible? Are you being taught the Bible? Are you in conversation and discussions with other sound Christians and discussing the Bible? Do you understand how to get in God's word and to mine it? At the minister's meeting... One shared an experience when they, their church was asked, or the ministry in their church was asked to go to another area and help a struggling congregation. And uh, they thought they were actually waiting for help when they got there. They didn't realize that they weren't as much waiting for help as they thought they were. But in that congregation, they encountered a man that had this belief. He, because the church that was helping had some expectations, had some guidelines, had some rules, whatever you want to call them, what do you all call those four things there? standards and values? There was a reaction by one man there, and he was emphatic. He said, if I think I have the quote If it is not specifically spelled out in the word of God, you cannot ask anyone to do it. If it does not say it in the word of God, you cannot tell anyone they have to do that. It's only the commandments of men. After he was done, then the brother asked him, do you use cocaine? No, he does not use cocaine. Show me in the Bible where you shouldn't. Well, he, and he actually it did the hard argument. He said, well, you you got me there. You say he wouldn't use cocaine. But the Bible doesn't say it, but we have principles of God's word. We don't use addictive drugs that will warp your mind and make you chemical dependent and so on. But the Bible does not state that in so much word, so much. Do you know, as you're we're going to interact with this world, do you know how to discern what's a right argument and what's a wrong argument? Would have you, if that man would have come to you and said, if it doesn't say it so in the Word of God, you can't make me do it. And you say, well, I guess that's true because we believe the Bible, so that must be true. That man knew. He knew the Word of God and he knew how to apply it. Do we? We must know and understand how to apply the word in our modern, how to apply the modern, the Bible in our modern world. We must instruct and teach it. Sometimes we get the ideas that conviction just drop out of the sky. You're alone with God, and you're alone with the Word. And you see this in the word, and that conviction grows. That actually does happen. You know that. But that is not the only way, and neither is it supposed to be the only way. It is not a super spiritual way to get conviction. Conviction must be taught. By and large, must be taught. especially to youth. While it is important that we have a standard in our heart, in other words, we will not do something because it's in our heart. We need that. But that's not the only thing we need. We need that. I mean, that's an essential thing. We do need that. But convictions often do not develop immediately. Immediately. Not even when taught. It takes con- consistent teaching. It takes consistent living. And consistent practice. And then those convictions are actually developed in the heart of our youth. Guidelines can be a teaching tool in developing these heart convictions. And then sometimes guidelines are just simply like guards on machinery. You know, before they had, I remember one of my co-workers years ago was uh, near a PTO shaft where it had a bolt sticking out and no shield and had a bolt sticking out and it caught his overalls and it ripped the seam of his overalls from one end to the other and he stood there naked but he was not spinning around there. There was no guard. Was, he wasn't intending to get caught. He wasn't necessarily even being careless. Maybe he was. There must be guards. There have been lots of limbs and lives been lost by lack of guards. Guidelines can be guards. They are not the full answer. But they can salvage life and limb of our people and uh, one clear example of that is courtship standards you know young people may not understand that this PTO shack going around them can actually grab them so there's guards put in place and I don't know why those guards I don't know why they have to be there trust us they're doing a good thing And that's the way for other guards also. Not because the heart is actually after it. Sometimes we don't understand our own hearts. The church, as pillar and ground of the truth, then must discern and proclaim and insist on Bible truth, on real knowledge. The church, I feel, generally, has allowed an erosion of truth to occur. And what used to be clearly wrong no longer is clearly wrong. And what was definitely questionable in the past is now Christian liberty. And our churches feel the pool of that drift. I personally know of one young man who was disgusted with his Anabaptist upbringing, And I don't know his background, so I don't know if he was justified in his disgust. I don't know if he was. But he had a distaste for it. He said, their doctrine is as straight as a gun barrel and just as empty. And it disgusted him. Using the marriage allegory, here was a marriage where everyone did dutifully what was supposed to do. But it lacked intimacy and care and love. And that's not. So what was his response? He stuffed that gun barrel full. He really did. But that gun barrel became very crooked. Response. Now he had a lot of heart. Now he had a lot of feeling. Now he had a lot of listening and understanding but the doctrine was way off he had forsaken the moral compass that directs the order and perimeter of that relationship talking about a marriage again it may have has some good things in the marriage but no longer any any moral compass in it when God's Unchanging moral compass is put aside. Worldly wisdom compass comes in and takes its place. The compass of relativism relativism and pragmatism, which means if it works, it must be good. It works, so it must be right. No, it's right if it's right. Not right if it works, even though I think God's will, God's way do work. Although not always, not always to our worldly understanding. That is the environment that we are in. And so what should our response be? Our response, like this morning, we're talking about is knowledge. Get to know God and his word. This needs to be done individually, each one of us, and it also needs to be done corporately. We must add knowledge personally to each one of us. And we must support each other corporately. We need to encourage each other. And we need to challenge each other. Sometimes we need to do what Alan does here. He does the, he takes the position of the devil's advocate. That means he takes an opposing position on purpose just to challenge your beliefs, just to see how you respond to it. You know, that thing done properly will bring perspective and context into our understanding of truth. So, um, I, I, I didn't think of an example of what to use. So, you think you think remarriage is wrong for a Christian? Well, I can have this example of where this person did that, and, and, and then they got remarried. Don't you think that's okay? And just challenge their thinking and things like that. We need to do that. If we don't do it, somebody is going to. And it won't be someone who's taking the devil's advocate. It will be the devil, word himself. And so properly prepared and equipped, and we can share truth, and we can confront error. Whether it's an unbeliever or whether it's in the church. And we can be missional also. We must be. Add to your faith knowledge. This morning the message was on one word. Knowledge. I promise I will try to go faster. (laughs) I'll try to get to three next time maybe. When we get to the guts and how that affects us, and so on, how that affects us personally. Um, so um, maybe I should say one one more thing, one more thing as uh, one more thing as we. No, I'll let that go for another time. So, well, if you are able to, why don't we just stand for a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word and your divine truth, which is your word and it's the example that you have given of yourself on earth and was recorded for us. Lord, we, as living in an imperfect world, and we, influenced by many things, we ask you that your spirit would guide us into all truth. We pray, Lord, that as we as we interact and care for one another, that we would be helpers of each other on the way of knowledge of learning to know you better. Lord, I pray, as we think of living in this world that we live in, we both need to be defensive and offensive. And I pray, Lord, that your people, the kingdom that you established back there in Pentecost, and that is going without you being present here, but everyone who listens to you, who listens to your spirit, who reads your word and applies themselves and gives themselves to you, there is your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us into all truth and that, Lord, that your kingdom would be pronounced on earth and that it would grow. And I pray you be with each one of us where we actually do not see areas where we still need that moment of hitting ourselves on the forehead and understand and knowledge. So I pray, Lord, you'd help each one of us in those areas. So we thank you, Lord, this morning. We thank you for your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated.